welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey. Um, so, uh, you know what? I feel like I have been, I have, I have not done our podcast justice. <gasps> and the reason being is because, you know, every so often we do an episode on like a historical person. Mm-hmm. And it seems that you do a lot of episodes about like strong, influential women, and I do episodes on deeply Dead disturbed white men. dudes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> deeply disturbed men. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to remedy this today. I'm going to do it right. And I had I had known very little about this person until I started doing my research, and the more I learned about her, the more I was like impressed about her. Just her talents and her um, very interesting life and everything. So today, I'm going to be doing an episode on Edmonia Lewis. Yes. I don't know who that is. So Edmonia Lewis was the first professional and internationally known African-American sculptor. Wow. Yes. So um, her work was like well known all over the world during this time period, but uh, we'll get into it. Mm-hmm. So uh, she was she is believed to have been born on July 4th, 1844. That she didn't she didn't know her her birth date. A lot of people didn't. But she was born free in Greenbush, New York, which is now the city of Rensselaer. And her father was Afro-Haitian, while her mother, her, her name was Catherine Mike Lewis, was of Mississauga, Ojibwe and African-American descent. So she was both African-American, Haitian, and uh, Native American. Oh, great. Uh, Her mother was known as an excellent weaver and craftswoman, while her father was a gentleman's servant. And her family background inspired Lewis in her later work. So by the time she reached the age of nine, both of her parents had died, and her two maternal aunts adopted her and her older half-brother, whose name was Samuel. Uh, He was born in 1835 to Lewis's father and his first wife in Haiti. And the family came to the United States when Samuel was a young child. Samuel eventually became a barber at age 12 after his father died because he needed to start making money for the family. And so he became a barber. I know. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine a seventh grader giving you a haircut? Oh, that's a nightmare. Uh, But apparently he was pretty good. pulling your teeth. (laughs) Or pulling your teeth, both. Uh, Apparently he was very good because eventually he moved out west and um, became an entrepreneur and uh, a landowner and was very successful. Um, But at the time, the children lived with their aunts near Niagara Falls for about four years. And Lewis and her aunts sold Ojibwe baskets and other items such as moccasins and embroidered blouses to tourists visiting Niagara Falls, Toronto, and Buffalo. So she's a local gal. Wow. Uh, During this time, Lewis went by her Native American name, which was Wildfire, while her brother was called Sunshine or Sunrise, which is like, these are just cool ass names. Great names, man. Yeah, great names, man. So in 1852, Samuel left for San Francisco, leaving Lewis in the care of a Captain S.R. Mills. And Samuel provided for her board and education. Captain S.R. Mills was a, um, an abolitionist. Hmm. He was a well-known abolitionist at the time. So in 1856, she enrolled at New York Central College, McGrawville, which was a Baptist abolitionist school. And at McGrawville, Lewis met many of the leading activists who had become mentors, patrons, and possible subjects for her work as her artistic career developed. 
So during her summer term there in 1858, she took classes in the primary department in preparation for college, and she was enrolled in primary courses in order to help advance her reading and writing skills, along with other subjects of academia that were not quite advanced enough for the academic department. Mm -hmm. So in a later interview, she said that she left the school after three years, having been, quote, declared to be wild. Oh, wow. Yeah. She said, until I was 12 years old, I led this wandering life, fishing and swimming and making moccasins. I was then sent to school for three years and McGrawville was declared to be wild. They could do nothing with me. <laughs> yeah. So they seem to have expected a lot from uh, a kid who oh. had been grown up just like doing whatever she could to yeah. like survive. So... Um, in 1859, when she was about 15 years old, her brother Samuel, an abolitionist, sent her to Oberlin, Ohio, where she attended the secondary Oberlin Academy Preparatory School for the full three-year course before she entered Oberlin College, which was one of the first U.S. higher learning institutions to admit women and people of color. Um, at the time, she changed her name to Mary Edmonia Lewis and began to study art. So from here on out, she's known as Edmonia Lewis. Okay. Um, she boarded with Reverend John Keep and his wife from 1859 until she was forced from the college in 1863. So I'll tell you about that in a second. Hmm. But at Oberlin, with a student population of 1,000, Lewis was one of only 30 students of color. Ooh, yeah. Reverend Keep was white, a member of the Board of Trustees, an avid abolitionist, and a spokesperson for co-education. So throughout her life, she was uh, kind of moved from from patron to patron, Okay. as a young child, uh, mostly with abolitionist families. Okay. So although Oberlin was the first college to accept black women in a co-educational environment, she later said that she was subject to daily racism and discrimination. So, and this is a good like example of just because, and I think this happened a lot in the civil rights era, mm -hmm. just because an institution says, okay, we're going to allow people of color or women or whatever they were formerly excluding. Right to come in does not mean that instantaneously everybody who attends there or works there mm -hmm. is all of a sudden like a very open-minded free thinking yeah. person. Oh, great. Wonderful. Yeah. As, as great as that would be. And of course the, obviously like the, the powers that be wanted that to happen. So, you know, the, the spirit of the institution was in the right, but unfortunately because of the, this change, mm -hmm. she bore the brunt of it because she was one of the first people to, to like actually enroll. So she and other female students were rarely given the opportunity to participate in the classroom or speak at public meetings. Uh, during the 1859-60 school year, Lewis enrolled in the Young Ladies Preparatory Department, which was designed to, quote, give young ladies facilities for the thorough mental discipline and the special training which will qualify them for teaching and other duties of their sphere. So basically, like, we're going to teach you how to be a teacher. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. That, that's the job you could have. That's the, the job you can have. Yeah. Yep. So during the winter of 1862, several months after the start of the Civil War, an incident occurred between Lewis and two Oberlin classmates, Maria Miles and Christina Ennis. Okay. So they were all roommates. <clears throat> they were boarding in Keep's home, and they had planned to go sleigh riding with some young men later that day. So before they went sleighing, Lewis served her friends a drink of spiced wine. Shortly after, Miles and Ennis fell severely ill. Doctors examined them and concluded that the two women had some sort of poison in their system, apparently cantharides, a reputed aphrodisiac. Huh. So for a time, it was not certain that they would survive. But days later, it became apparent that the two women would recover from the incident and authorities initially took no action. 
There is no evidence that Lewis poisoned the two students, nor that the doctors found any traces of poison in the bodies of Miles and Ennis. So, news of this incident rapidly spread throughout the town of Oberlin, where the general population was not as progressive as at the college Mm -hmm. and through Ohio as a whole. So while Lewis was walking home alone one night, she was dragged into an open field by unknown assailants, badly beaten, and left for dead. Oh my god. So... After the attack, local authorities arrested Lewis, which is like, (gasps) talk about (laughs) insult to injury, and they charged her with poisoning her friends. So John Mercer Langston, who was an Oberlin College alumnus and the only practicing African-American lawyer in Oberlin, represented Lewis during her trial. So although most witnesses spoke against her and she did not testify, the jury eventually acquitted her of the charges. Did her roommates think she had poisoned So it... I, I don't know. So there isn't a, like a ton of information about this because it ended up becoming so like, like it just rumory. the story. Yeah. yeah. It just got it like there were so many layers to this. And some people said that they poisoned themselves and blamed it on her. Oh some God. people said that it was just like, you know, maybe a psychosomatic thing because mm-hmm. they didn't find any poison in their systems. They thought that maybe they did it themselves because it was an effort, like this thing that was an aphrodisiac. Right. Like we're and they gonna were going to go, go see some dudes. They were going to go see some boys, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So uh, some people say that she was like, she was framed. Like this was, this was a setup from the beginning kind of thing. Up. But unfortunately, even though she was acquitted, yeah, the remainder of her time at Oberlin was marked by isolation and prejudice. Mm-hmm. So about a year after the poisoning trial, she was accused of stealing artists materials from the college. So, Somebody had it out for her in that Jeez. she she got acquitted from like pr- attempting to poison her friends and then she gets accused from from stealing artist materials from her school. So she again was acquitted due to lack of evidence but was not considered fully cleared by the Ohio mm-hmm. community and she was forbidden from registering for her last term by the principal of the young ladies course whose name was Marianne Dascom. Uh, she was unable to graduate and was effectively forced from the school. So they got what they wanted. She was forced out of the school. So after this incident, after college, she moved to Boston in early 1864, and she began to pursue her career as a sculptor, which is what she wanted to do from the beginning. Okay. Uh, the Keeps wrote a letter of introduction on Lewis's behalf to abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison in Boston, and he introduced her to already established sculptors in the area, as well as writers who publicized Lewis in the abolitionist press. So they gave her a lot of press and and allowed her to get her start Mm -hmm. in the community um finding an instructor however was not easy for her three male sculptors refused to instruct her before she was introduced to the moderately successful sculptor whose uh whose name was edward augustus brackett and he specialized in marble portrait busts okay um, his clients were some of the most important abolitionists of the day, including Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, William Lloyd Garrison, Charles Sumner, and John Brown. John Brown's body. You know John mm. Brown. Uh, to instruct her, he lent her fragments of sculpture to copy in clay, uh, which he then critiqued. So under his tutelage, she crafted her own sculpting tools and sold her first piece, a sculpture of a woman's hand, for $8. Um, and hands, hands and arms were very popular during this time. Like it's, it's a very okay. like British Victorian thing. Uh, and I love them. I, ugh, I just love Victorian hands. They're like so cool and creepy, but anyway, that was her first sale. Um, and Whitney, a fellow sculptor and friend of Lewis's wrote in an 1864 letter to her sister that Lewis's relationship with her instructor did not end amicably. Uh, she did not recount the reason for the split. 
Uh, Lewis opened her studio to the public in her first solo exhibition in 1864. So from what I've gathered from doing research about her, she seemed like she was, she was like a tough cookie. Like she wasn't somebody who was just going to like let people walk all over her Mm -hmm. as much as they could. Like she had a strong personality and spoke her mind and some people did not appreciate that. Mm. And just because the this idea of like you think this idea of a kind of a Mary Sue like she's the first black sculptor like she's being put on a pedestal by these abolitionists who want to use her as an example and mm-hmm. she's not going to like be the quiet nice little girl and do what they ask her to do like she's going to do what she wants which is she wants to be an artist that's all right. she wants is to be a successful artist and like make a living doing it um so I, for that I think she's like super cool but anyway. Uh, she was inspired by the lives of abolitionists and Civil War heroes, and her subjects in 1863 and 1864 included some of the most famous abolitionists of her day, John Brown and Colonel Robert Gold Shaw. When she met Union Colonel Robert Gold Shaw, the commander of an African-American Civil War regiment from Massachusetts, which the movie Glory is about, uh, she was inspired to create a bust of his likeness, which impressed his family, who eventually purchased the piece. Nice. So she then made plaster cast reproductions of the bust, and she sold 100 at $15 a piece. So she's like, you like Shaw? I'll keep making Shaw for you guys. (laughs) He's a popular dude. Um, this was the most famous work to date and the money she earned from the busts allowed her to eventually move to Rome, which is where she wanted to end up. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Anna Quincy Waterston, a poet, then wrote a poem about Lewis and Shaw. Not Hobbes and Shaw. Not Hobbes and Shaw, but Lewis and Shaw. (laughs) Uh, from 1864 to 1871, Lewis was written about or interviewed by Lydia Maria Child, Elizabeth Peabody, Anna Quincy Waterston, and Laura Curtis Bullard. These were all important women in Boston and New York abolitionist circles. Uh, because of these women, articles about Lewis appeared in the important abolitionist journals, including Broken Fetter, The Christian Register, and The Independent, as well as many others. Uh, Lewis was perceptive to her reception in Boston. She was not opposed to the coverage she received in the abolitionist press, and she was not known to deny monetary aid, but she could not tolerate the false praise. Mm, Okay. She knew that some did not really appreciate her art, but saw her as an opportunity to express and show their support for human rights. So she started to feel like she was just like there. Being trotted out. Yeah, being trotted Mm -hmm. out as like, see what we've done? Like, see? Like, we're so... Progressive. We're so good. Yeah, we're so progressive and good. And she was like, I just want to make art. Like, just let me let me be famous for my own talents, right. not because I happen to be a black woman of Native American descent. Mm-hmm. So uh, early works that prov- that proved highly popular included medallion portraits of the abolitionists John Brown and William Lloyd Garrison. And she also drew inspiration from Henry Wadworth Longfellow and his work, particularly his epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha. Uh, She made several busts of its leading characters, which he drew from Ojibwe legend. So the success and popularity of these works in Boston allowed her to bear the cost of a trip to Rome in 1866. And on her 1865 passport is written, M. Edmonia Lewis is a black girl sent by subscription to Italy, having displayed great talents as a sculptor. Wow. That that feels early for someone just getting to go to to, Italy. Right? And it it gets so much more... Surprising. Mm -hmm. So uh, the established sculptor Hiram Powers gave her space to work in his studio and she entered a circle of expatriate artists and established her own space within the former studio of 18th century Italian sculptor Antonio Canova, 
Uh, she received professional support from both Charlotte Cushman, a Boston actress and a pivotal figure for expatriate sculptors in Rome, and Maria Weston Chapman, a dedicated worker for the anti-slavery cause. So she immediately made good girlfriends who were all about supporting her and fellow artists. Um, and so Rome was where she spent most of her adult career. She just loved it. Wow. She stayed there for a long time. Um, so she loved it so much because Italy's less pronounced racism allowed increased opportunity to a black artist. Uh, in Rome, Lewis enjoyed more social, spiritual, and artistic freedom than what she had in the United States. Mm-hmm. Quote, I never heard of racist snipes in Rome. Why, I am invited everywhere and am treated just as nicely as if the bluest of blue blood flowed through my veins. I number among my patrons the Marquise of Boot, Lady Ashburton, and other members of the nobility. So it, this is an interesting tack because, as you know, uh, slavery, uh, many Americans don't have the experience of knowing how Africans achieve success as diplomats and church officials, amongst other high-ranking positions in Italy and Europe as a whole, mm-hmm. as far back as the Renaissance. Okay. Um, there was a great exhibit at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore uh, that was entitled Revealing the African Presence in Renaissance or Europe in 2012, which was curated by Dr. Joni Spicer. Um, the catalog is online. Definitely check it out. But it's this idea that uh, Europe, going way farther back than you would expect, was way more diverse and more multicultural mm-hmm. and far less racist than movies and TV might make you think. Sure. Um, we as Americans have a lens of slavery over like racial relations at this point in our lives you know mm-hmm. that that's a, a major blight on our history it's something that we're still working through um institutionalized racism is still something that we're working through and granted like it's it's certainly not like europe is this you know bastion of like perfect unity and there's never any issues with racism over there but it was definitely more integrated like people were integrated from all over the world in these very popular like spots of history and art Mm -hmm. and science and it was it was way more multicultural than what you may think so yeah definitely check out that catalog it's fascinating um and it shows uh the influence of uh specifically black africans um on renaissance art so uh she was also a catholic so her experience in rome allowed her to be closer spiritually to her faith And had she stayed in America, she would have had to continue relying on abolitionist patronage. Therefore, Italy allowed her to make her own in the international art world. So she was able to make her own money. She didn't have to have patronage. She didn't have to have a white person kind of like be the middleman Mm -hmm. for her artwork. So, yeah, a lot of what you're saying um, kind of reminds me of what Josephine Baker was going Mm -hmm. through in the 20th century, too. Exactly. Yeah. Like she left America and ended up staying in Europe because she found that she wasn't facing the same kinds of issues over there. And then she was free to do her, do her art basically yeah. be a dancer and singer mm-hmm. and be extremely popular and groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's amazing. Um, so Lewis began sculpting in marble working within the neoclassical manner, which was really popular at the time. Um, but she focused on naturalism within themes and images relating to black and native American people. So the surroundings of the classical world greatly inspired her and influenced her work, which she recreated the classical art style. She did a lot of copies of Michelangelo work, mm-hmm. which a handful still exists today. Um, she was also unique in the way she approached sculpting abroad. Uh, she insisted on enlarging her clay and wax models and marble herself rather than hire native Italian sculptors to do it for her, uh, which was the common practice for okay. art artists at the time. 
Um, and the reason why she did this was because male sculptors were largely skeptical of the talent of female sculptors and also accused them of not doing their own work. Oh. So uh, Harriet Hosmer, a fellow sculptor and expatriate, also did this. And Lewis was also known to make sculptures before receiving commissions for them. <laughs> or sent unsolicited works to Boston patrons requesting that they raise funds for materials and shipping. So they would just... They would open up a box and it would be a sculpture and then there would be an invoice like, hey, <laughs> make sure you pay me before the 30th. Thanks so much. Hope you <laughs> enjoyed you the piece. Here you go. Here you go. So she was one, a great self-advertiser. Like she she was like, I'm going to get mine. And also uh, she's going to show that she did it all herself. Like I'm not going to give you an opportunity to say that there's somebody else who is helping me or doing most of the work or whatever. Like wow. I'm going to do this from the bottom to the top and you're going to pay me for it. So, <laughs> um, so while in Rome, she continued to express her African-American and Native American heritage. One of her most famous works is called Forever Free. Okay. Um, it depicts a powerful image of an African-American man and woman emerging from the bonds of slavery. And he is standing and she is like on her knees and she, is, she has her hands clasped in prayer. And he is there being freed from the chains of bondage. And the man is actually standing on a um, like a weighted ball, like the ball and chain, um, as though he is like casting it away from his body. It's very it's a beautiful wow. piece. Um, another sculpture she created was called the arrow maker, which showed a native American father teaching his daughter how to make an arrow. And it's very sweet, um, and, uh, very evocative. Um, her work sold for large sums of money in 1873, an article in the new, new Orleans, new Orleans, Oh, father Brad's going to hate me. New Orleans Picayune stated Edmonia Lewis has snared two $50,000 commissions, which is an extraordinary Holy amount of money. Crap. In 1873. Yeah. yeah. Let alone uh, so, today. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. You know what? I'm going to look it up. Uh, $1,873. Now. Oh, $1,068,287.50. So she got two commissions. Wow. $50,000. So she made $2 million, basically. <gasps> which is amazing. Um, so clearly she was extremely popular, very famous, made a lot of money and her newfound popularity made her studio an, uh, a tourist destination. People would come by and see her. Wow. Um, she also had many major exhibitions during her rise to fame, including one in Chicago, uh, in 1870 and in Rome in 1871. So a major coup in her career was participating in the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. For this, she created a monumental 3,015-pound marble sculpture called The Death of Cleopatra, Ooh. which portrayed the queen in the throes of death. So this piece depicts the moment popularized by Shakespeare and Antony and Cleopatra, mm -hmm. in which Cleopatra has allowed herself to be bitten by a poisonous asp following the loss of her crown. So of the piece, J.S. Ingraham wrote that Cleopatra was, quote, the most remarkable piece of sculpture in the American section of the exposition. That's really cool. uh, much of the viewing public were shocked by Lewis's frank portrayal of death, but the statue drew thousands of viewers. Uh, Cleopatra was considered at the time to be a woman of both sensuous beauty and demonic power, and her self-annihilation has been portrayed numerously in art as well as literature and cinema. But in Death of Cleopatra, Edmonia Lewis added in an innovative flair by portraying the Egyptian queen in a disheveled, inelegant manner, a departure from the Victorian approach of representing death. Um, so it's... It's her sitting on a throne 
and it's very classical. She's wearing like, you know, she's wearing like loose fitting toga like garments, but she is resting with her head back like someone shot her in the forehead kind of thing, you know, like it's her head is thrown back and her face is like kind of melting into death. And there's like her little um, snake coming out of her forehead um, and her, her arms are relaxed and she looks like she has been, you know, thrashing around and it's very beautiful. I mean, this, the face is so stunningly gorgeous and it's huge. I mean, it's a 3000 pound like sculpture. Did you say if she was also at the exposition or did she just like send the sculpture? Um, I think she may have just sent the sculpture. Like, I don't think she was there. Yeah. Uh, you can pay me later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's an invoice. Thanks very much. Uh, her death of Cleopatra may have been a response actually to the culture of the Centennial Exposition, which celebrated 100 years of the United States being built around the principles of liberty and freedom, a celebration of unity despite centuries of slavery, the recent civil war, and the failing attempts and efforts of reconstruction. So to, in order to avoid any acknowledgement of black empowerment by the Centennial, Lewis's sculpture could not have directly addressed the subject of emancip- emancipation. So this was kind of like her under-the-radar kind of critique of it. Mm. So although her white contemporaries were also sculpting Cleopatra and other comparable subject matter, such as Harriet Hosmer's Zenobia, uh, Lewis was more prone to scrutiny on the premise of race and gender due to the fact that she, like Cleopatra, was female. Mm-hmm. Um, so Charmaine Nelson, who is uh, a biographer, she wrote this book called The Color of Stone, Sculpting the Black Female Subject in 19th Century America, wrote, quote, the associations between Cleopatra and a black Africa were so profound that any depiction of the ancient Egyptian queen had to contend with the issue of her race and the potential expectation of her blackness. Lewis's white queen gained the aura of historical accuracy through primary research without sacrificing its symbolic links to abolitionism, black Africa, or black diaspora. But what it refused to facilitate was the racial objectification of the artist's body. Lewis could not so readily become the subject of her own representation if her subject was corporeally white. So to avoid a direct comparison of like, oh, she's depicting herself or, oh, she's making a comment about slavery. She made Cleopatra traditionally white as she is like usually depicted during the classical times uh, in order to like avoid that quick comparison and be able to get her point across in a subtle way. So the piece was a hit. People loved it. But, After it was placed in storage, the statue was moved to the 1878 Chicago Interstate Exhibition, uh, where it remained unsold. So no one bought it. Hmm. Um, It was eventually acquired by a gambler by the name of Blind John Condon, who purchased it from a saloon on Clark Street to mark the grave of a racehorse named Cleopatra. Uh, the The grave was in front of the grandstand of his Harlem racetrack in the Chicago suburb of Forest Park, where the sculpture remained for nearly 100 years until the land was bought by the U.S. Postal Service and the sculpture was moved to a construction storage yard in Cicero. Uh, While at the storage yard, the death of Cleopatra sustained extensive damage at the hands of well-meaning Boy Scouts who painted and caused other damage to the sculpture. Oh, man. Which doesn't sound very well-meaning, Boy Scouts. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Uh, Eventually, Dr. James Orland, a dentist in Forest Park and member of the Forest Park's Historical Society, acquired the sculpture and held it in private storage at Forest Park Mill. Um, So later, Marilyn Richardson, an assistant professor, 
professor in what was then the writing program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and later an independent curator and scholar of African-American art who was working on a biography of Lewis went searching for the death of Cleopatra. Um, she was then directed to the Forest Park Historical Society and Dr. Orland by the Met Museum of Art, mm-hmm. who had earlier been contacted by the Historical Society regarding the sculpture. So other people were also looking for it. So Dr. Richardson, after confirming the sculpture's location, contacted African-American bibliographer Dorothy Porter Wesley, and the two gained the attention of NMAA's George Gurney. So according to Gurney, curator uh, emeritus at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the sculpture was in a racetrack in Forest Park during World War II. Finally, the sculpture came under the purview of the Forest Park Historical Society, who donated it to the Smithsonian American Art Museum in 1994. Wow. Uh Chicago-based Andre Dojnowski, in conjunction with the Smithsonian, restored it to its near-original state after repairing the nose, sandals, hands, chin, and extensive sugaring, which is a disintegration of the surface, at a cost of around $30,000. It now resides uh, at the Smithsonian. Great. So. So, back to Lewis. A testament to her renown as an artist came in 1877 when former U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant commissioned her to do his portrait. Oh, nice. Uh, He he sat for her as a model and was pleased with her finished piece. Uh, She also contributed a bust of Charles Sumner to the 1895 Atlanta Exposition. And in the late 1880s, neoclassicism declined in popularity. So did the popularity of Lewis's artwork. So towards the end of the 19th century, it's starting to like, eh, we're not as into this anymore. Um, She continued sculpting in marble, increasingly creating altarpieces and other works for the Roman Catholic patrons. And in the art world, unfortunately, she became eclipsed by history and lost fame. By 1901, she had moved to London. The events of her later years are not known. So no one knows what happened to her after she moved to London. Um, They found a... um, like a census document Mm -hmm. at one point when they were doing research on her, they meaning the historians. (laughs) And uh, it said that she was um, a woman of private means living in this neighborhood of London. Yeah. She had like a couple mil. Yeah. She, uh, she also never married and hadn't any children. So she was a single woman who had her own money. And as far as anyone knows she did not continue to sculpt she just kind of lived her life for the rest of her life um she lived in the hammersmith area of london england by the way uh before her death on september 17th 1907 in the hammersmith borough infirmary according to her death certificate the cause of her death was chronic bright's disease which is um kidney failure um she is buried in saint mary's roman catholic cemetery in london uh, there were earlier theories that Lewis died in Rome in 1907, or alternatively, that she had died in Marin County, California, and was buried in an unmarked grave in San Francisco, but that wasn't true. Um, in 2017, a GoFundMe by East Greenbush Town historian Bobby Reno was successful, and Edmonia Lewis's grave was restored. Oh, good. Uh, the work was done by the E.M. Lander Company in London. Uh, she's also had several posthumous exhibitions in Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York City, and at Oberlin College. And she is also the namesake of the Edmonia Lewis Center for Women and Transgender People at Oberlin College. Oh, okay. So even though Oberlin did her dirty, they did name a center, an art center, after her. Good. Too little too late, but that's great. I mean, it sounds like it's a great center. Uh, And finally, she was honored with a Google Doodle on February 1st, 2017, depicting her sculpting The Death of Cleopatra. And it's very lovely. I highly recommend you look it up. So that was uh, my my 
uh, topic on Edmonia Lewis. I did not know any of this stuff. I had not learned about her, and she sounds like she was amazing. I'll also try and like post some pictures of her artwork because Mm -hmm. um, she was incredibly talented and very classical style, very beautiful, very, very like you know mid to late nineteenth century where it's very um, the depictions of people are very emotional. It's supposed to tell a story with the way that they're positioned. There's a lot of like you know little keys and like symbols all around that kind of tell you the story of what's going on with the piece. So I like when we do a refresh, a refresher on people that everybody should know. And then I love when we talk about somebody that we've never heard of. Right. It makes it so much more interesting to do the topic. (laughs) Like I flew through doing the research on this because it was so interesting. So it was nice to do. So um, I will tell you before I tell you what the quiz is about. I have been having very vivid dreams lately, and I had a dream the other night that I came up with a quiz. I was writing a quiz for you for the podcast, Mm -hmm. and it was about accents. And I was like, ooh, I know. I'll I'll describe the accent in the accent. Um, and I, and in the dream, I was like, oh my God, Lauren, that's so brilliant. Like, that'd be so good. And I was even thinking about like, oh, I'll do like mid Atlantic and I'll do like, you know, um, I'll do like a different kind of Irish and mm-hmm. maybe I'll try and figure out how to do a Dutch accent and like, <laughs> like all this stuff. And when I woke up, I was like, that sounds way too hard. Also, I would, I would definitely only be doing white accents, uh, to avoid like overt racism. Yeah. But I was like, oh, yeah, mid-Atlantic or like like some of the older accents that don't exist anymore <laughs> that you hear in like old movies and things. But see here, kid. See here, kid. What kind of accent is this? Like, how <laughs> annoying would that be, too? Like, how annoying would that be to listen to? <laughs> anyway, this is this quiz is not about accents. Going off of Edmonia Lewis and being in Rome, this is a quiz about the Renaissance. Question number one. This popular Greek philosopher wasn't alive during the Renaissance, but he sure was popular amongst the learned elite in the academy in Florence. His writings were considered the basis for progress in the arts and sciences, and his republic was groundbreaking even centuries later. Who is this philosopher whose name we get the term for a kind of love? Question number two. Although there wasn't exactly a beginning and an end date, how long did the Renaissance last? A. 50 years. B. 100 years. C, 200 years, or D, 300 years. Question number three. One of my favorite Italian artists of the Renaissance era is Sandro Botticelli, whose The Birth of Venus is one of the most discussed in an intro to art history course. However, arguably his second most popular works is often discussed with Venus, depicting the three graces, Venus, Zephyr, Chloris, and Mercury, all meeting in a beautiful floral wood. What is the name of this artwork, which is not actually related to a springtime pasta dish? Question number four. A number of technologies from the European Renaissance period were adopted by Russia rather early and subsequently perfected to become a part of a strong domestic tradition. Mostly these were military technologies, such as cannon casting adopted by at least the 15th century. Another technology that, according to one hypothesis, originally was brought from Europe by the Italians resulted in the development of this, the national beverage of Russia. Name it. Question number five. Much like Cher or Madonna, we know the great painter, sculptor, architect, and poet Michelangelo by his first or Christian name. What was his surname? Question number six. 
This German guy was a widely influential astronomer and a key figure in the 17th century scientific revolution. He's best known for his law of planetary motion, as well as providing one of the foundations for Newton's theory of universal gravitation. Who is this scientist? Question number seven. Speaking of Michelangelo, one of his most famous artworks is a sculpture depicting the body of Jesus on the lap of his mother Mary after the crucifixion. Housed currently in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, its balance of classical beauty with naturalism has impacted artwork for centuries, with the pose reflected in painting, sculpture, movies, and TV. What is the name of this piteous artwork? Question number eight. Oh, the Dutch loved to make maps, and they did it with vigor and vim during the Renaissance. They figured that there was a large southern polar continent that still hadn't been seen. However, throughout the Renaissance, Antarctica, which would eventually be sighted in 1820, was known by a pretty familiar name that was later given to a large landmass dubbed New Holland. What is this name? Question number nine. In 1517, our boy Martin Luther, at the time a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, posted his list of propositions to the Catholic Church, known as the 95 Theses. While he was protesting a lot of stuff, the main gist of the theses is seen in the alternate title, Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of What? And finally, question number 10. This Harlem Renaissance opera by George and Ira Gershwin featured a cast of classically trained African-American singers, a daring artistic choice at the time, and was first performed on Broadway in 1935. The libretto tells the story of a disabled black street beggar living in the slums of Charleston. It deals with his attempts to rescue one of the titular characters from the clutches of Crown, her violent and possessive lover, and Sport in Life, her drug dealer. What is the name of this influential opera? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. How you feeling? Mostly okay. Okay. All right. I like it. Mostly. Mostly. All right. Question number one. This popular Greek philosopher wasn't alive during the Renaissance, but he sure was popular amongst the learned elite in the academy in Florence. His writings were considered the basis for progress in the arts and sciences, and his republic was groundbreaking even centuries later. Who is this philosopher whose name we get the term for a kind of love? Plato. It is Plato. His allegory of the cave has influenced insufferable philosophy students for a very long time. (laughs) Question number two. Although there wasn't exactly a beginning and an end date, how long did the Renaissance last? 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, or 300 years? I'm going to say 200 years. Ah, so close. 300 Mm. years. So from the 14th to the 17th century about, they say. 
And by they, I mean historians. Uh, the previous era is now called the Middle Ages, not the Dark Ages, as previously thought, and was followed by the early modern period or the modern period. There isn't a lot of conclusion by historians as to if the Middle Ages also contain the Renaissance or not, but this is like the general division of these eras. People are constantly like changing it. Question number three, one of my favorite Italian artists of the Renaissance era is Sandro Botticelli, whose The Birth of Venus is one of the most discussed in an intro to art history course. However, arguably his second most popular works is often discussed with Venus, depicting the three graces, Venus, Zephyr, Chloris, and Mercury, all meeting in a beautiful floral wood. What is the name of this artwork, which is not actually related to a springtime pasta dish? Zep. Primavera. It's the primavera, which means springtime in Italian. Uh, painted in 1482, it's one of my favorite pieces of the Renaissance era. Um, his figures tend to be slightly boneless, which is definitely an art history t- term that we use in the museum. <laughs> it's not an art history term. Um, I had a professor in undergrad, Dr. Karen Barsman. Shout out to Car- to Barsman. She does, does not, not listen, listen to this, to this podcast. podcast. Um, she hated this piece. I remember her specifically saying how much she hated it. And I remember I was like struck as a, as a uh, very sensitive young woman who just wanted her art history professor to love her, um, that she hated this piece. Uh, Barsman would also not allow us to leave to use the bathroom. Hmm. If she saw the glow of your cell phone in class, she would kick you out. If you were sleeping, she would kick you out. If you were talking, she would kick you out. She was formidable. She was terrifying. Um, But the class was always so beautifully quiet, and I learned so much, so she was great. How many times Um, did you get kicked out? I never got kicked out because I was so afraid. Like, my bladder was more afraid of Karen Barsman than (laughs) needing to pee, so. Um, Just as an FYI, Birth of Venus and the Primavera are both in the Uffizi Gallery in Italy, in Rome. In Florence, I mean, sorry. Uh, Question number four. A number of technologies from the European Renaissance period were adopted by Russia rather early and subsequently perfected to become a part of a strong domestic tradition. Mostly these were military technologies, such as cannon casting, adopted by at least the 15th century. Another technology that, according to one hypothesis, originally was brought from Europe by the Italians resulted in the development of this, the national beverage of Russia. Name it. It's going to be vodka. It is vodka. As early as 1386, Genoese ambassadors brought the first aqua vitae, or water of life, to Moscow and presented it to the Grand Duke Dmitry Donsky. Uh, the Genoese likely developed this beverage with the help of the El alchemists of Provence who used an Arab invented distillation apparatus to convert grape must into alcohol. Later, a Muscovite monk called Isidore used this technology to produce the first original Russian vodka around 1430. Question number five, much like Cher or Madonna, we know the great painter, sculptor, architect, and poet Michelangelo by his first or Christian name. What was his surname? It's like Simon or Simone or something like that. It's Buonarroti. Okay. So he's Michelangelo Buonarroti. Uh, Taken independently, the words Buona and Roti means good broken or good, like, uh, I don't think it actually means that, but uh, it's just an interesting fact about Italian, the Italian language. Uh, question number six. This German guy was a widely influential astronomer and a key figure in the 17th century scientific revolution. He's best known for his law of planetary motion, as well as providing one of the foundations for Newton's theory of universal gravitation. Who is this scientist? Kepler. 
It is Johannes Kepler. Uh, he was also a mathematician and astrologer, which sounds counterintuitive to the whole science thing. But apparently in the 17th century, the line between astronomy and astrology were far more blurred. So we can forgive him that. Uh, question number seven. Speaking of Michelangelo, one of his most famous artworks is a sculpture depicting the body of Jesus on the lap of his mother Mary after the crucifixion. Housed currently in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, its balance of classical beauty with naturalism has impacted artwork for centuries, with the pose reflected in paintings, sculpture, movies, and TV. What is the name of this piteous artwork? La Pieta. La Pieta. Uh, like many famous artworks, the Pieta has been attacked several times. I'm going to tell you one story. Uh, the most substantial damage occurred on May 21st, 1972, which happened to be Pentecost Sunday, when a mentally disturbed geologist, we know so many of those, uh, the Hungarian-born Australian Laszlo Toth, walked into the chapel and attacked the sculpture with a geologist's hammer while shouting, I am Jesus Christ! I have risen from the dead! With 15 blows, he removed Mary's arm at the elbow, knocked off a chunk of her nose, and chipped one of her eyelids. Bob Cassily, an American sculptor and artist from St. Louis, Missouri, was one of the first people to remove Toth from the Pieta. Quote, I leapt up and grabbed the guy by the beard. We both fell into this crowd of screaming Italians. It was something of a scene. <laughs> so he was a sculptor. I thought you were going to say he's the guy that fixed it, but he was just there. <laughs> He was just there because, I mean, you know, you got to you got to make your pilgrimage to like one of the greatest sculptures of the in the world. So he is actually um, Bob Cassidy was the uh, he founded a museum, like an art museum in, in St. Louis. But hmm. he prevented this guy from destroying it. Um, also, onlookers took many of the pieces of the marble that flew off. Of course. And later, some of them were returned, but many were not, including Mary's nose, uh, which had to be reconstructed from a block cut out of her back. Oof. So. Again, art really makes people do crazy things. It's nuts. All right. Question number eight. Oh, the Dutch loved to make maps, and they did it with vigor and vim during the Renaissance. They figured that there was a large southern polar continent that still hadn't been seen. However, throughout the Renaissance, Antarctica, which would eventually be sighted in 1820, was known by a pretty familiar name that was later given to a large landmass dubbed New Holland. What is this name? Did they call it New Zealand? Oh, Zealand? you're so close. It's just Zealand. It was Australia. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know this, but throughout the Renaissance, um, Antarctica, theoretically, was known as Terra Australis, okay. or Australia for short. Um, so, however, after that name was transferred to New Holland in the 19th century, because they were like, that's actually better because we know that this exists, um, the new name of Antarctica was bestowed on the South Polar Continent. See, because you said vim and vigor that made me think of zeal. Oh, so, yeah. false clue. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I was just I was just writing like a funny line. <laughs> I should probably be better at that. Um, no, that was good. You followed the lines, but I, I created a, a red herring without even knowing it. That's on me. Uh, question number nine. In 1517, our boy Martin Luther, at the time a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, posted his list of propositions to the Catholic Church, known as the 95 Theses. While he was protesting a lot of stuff, the main gist of the theses is seen in the alternate title, Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of What? Indulgences. It is indulgences. The 95 Theses, as you may know, set off the upheaval of the church known as the Reformation. Um, I was going to say we should do an episode on that, but... Uh, I already did. You talk about the defenestration of Prague. We talked, talked about, about the, the Reformation in that. Yeah, and that's enough. 
It's just a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of like theories. There's a lot of theses. It's just crazy. So finally, question number 10. This Harlem Renaissance opera by George and Ira Gershwin featured a cast of classically trained African-American singers, a daring artistic choice at the time, and was first performed on Broadway in 1935. The libretto tells the story of a disabled black street beggar living in the slums of Charleston. It deals with his attempts to rescue one of the titular characters from the clutches of Crown, her violent and possessive lover, and sport in life, her drug dealer. What is the name of this influential opera? It's Porgy and Bess. It is Porgy and Bess. Porgy and Bess is considered a jazz opera. Mm. Uh, It has been performed for years and around the world, but not without controversy, even from the beginning. Duke Ellington apparently loved it, but members of the original cast had concerns that their characters might play into a stereotype that African-Americans lived in poverty, took drugs, and solved their problems with their fists. It was, as you can imagine, extremely unpopular during the civil rights era, uh, but lately it's been seen as a flawed but important piece of Americana that nevertheless launched the careers of many black American opera singers. And it has been revived in the 70s and has been adapted and revived um, in the early 2000s. And I think the most recent adaptation was like 2011. Mm. So nice. uh, so that was my quiz on the Renaissance or, or Renaissances, I guess we'll say. Wonderful. Thank you. It was great. So thanks. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you this inspires you to look up some more artwork by Edmonia Lewis or maybe uh, looking up the Primavera. It's a very beautiful piece. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, you know where to find us, guys. We're, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Perfect. Are you, are you going to say tell a friend? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Not today. <laughs> not today. Nope. You know what? Don't, don't. tell anybody This today. week, this week, don't tell anyone. <laughs> this is going to be our secret, okay? <laughs> we are only talking to you, listener. You can insert your name here. We're only listening to you. Insert name here. <laughs> That was very good. All right. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next (laughs) time. Bye. Bye.